Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in Boston to speak with John Corrales of Locked On Celtics about Boston's big win in Game 1 over the Toronto Raptors. We go to LA next to speak with William Updike of Locked On Clippers about the LA Clippers closing out the Dallas Mavericks and moving on to round two. And lastly, we go to Houston to speak with Jackson Gatlin of Locked On Rockets about Houston looking to close out the Thunder in game six on Monday. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the Locked On AFL Podcast. And I'm the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com and at Yahoo Sports Australia. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code Locked On, and you'll get $10 off your next order. Playoffs are in full swing. So we're going to be looking at some of the series across the NBA today. So let's get to it. And now let's welcome in the host of the Locked On Celtics podcast. John Corrales is here with me. John, the Celtics uh, round two is underway. They take on or they took on the Toronto Raptors and game one was a pretty comfortable victory for Boston. Is that sort of level of dominance a repeatable thing? Well, um, it can be. The Celtics have shown that they do have the ability to uh, put up big runs against the Raptors. They blew them out the last time they were in the bubble. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. The Raptors are 10-0 and 0, uh, against non-Celtics teams, and in two games against the Celtics, they have not led for a single second. So the Celtics do have some sort of answer for the Raptors, but uh, I will also acknowledge that the Raptors missed a lot of makeable shots that could have changed the dynamic of this, this game one a lot. Pascal Siakam missed a bunch of shots right at the rim. Uh, a few different Raptors had pretty decent looks from three, that didn't fall. So some of it was the, the Celtics defense. Their transition defense was good. But if Toronto comes out in game two and, and just makes a few more of those shots, then th- that game does not seem like it would be a comfortable one for Boston. Yeah, Van Vliet shot 19% for the game. He was 2 of 11 from 3. Siakam went at 31%, didn't hit a 3. Lowry was under 42%. Ibaka was just at 40%. So there was some shooting difficulties. In fact, the Raptors as a whole shot just 37% from the field. So there's obviously room for improvement there. And I dare say, John, there probably is some room for regression with Marcus Smart getting 21 points on uh, just t- <laughs> on 10 shots. Uh, yeah, that that's probably true. But we also know, first of all, Marcus Smart has the tendency to, to get hot. He has the ability to get hot. Uh, we know that the Raptors tend to give up corner threes. And if Marcus Smart is, is going to get a bunch of these corner threes, he, ha- he has the ability to hit those and, and get hot again. Now, is he going to shoot five of nine from three? No, probably not. But, uh, you know, other guys are going to have those opportunities as well. Uh, the Celtics are going to get those looks. They're certainly going to get those looks. Uh, and if, if they, they can capitalize, then maybe Marcus Smart doesn't have to shoot five of nine from three. Uh, Jalen Brown only shot three of nine from three. So 
mix that up a little bit and you get a more usual performance from Jalen Brown and from Marcus Smart, you still kind of end up with uh, a similar uh, a similar result. So look, it was uh, pretty much a, a domination majority of the game, almost a 20-point victory. The other interesting change I thought in the rotation was, and this was, I guess, relatively predictable, that in round one, we saw a lot of Ennis Cantor to try and match up against Joel Embiid, yep. but he's out of the rotation. So we get a lot more Rob Williams in this one, 19 minutes there for him. 10 points, two blocks. How did he look against the Gasol-Abarca combination? I, I thought he looked okay. Uh, he made some mistakes. Uh, he was out of position a couple of times for sure. Uh, he's not going to bang uh, against a, a guy like Gasol. Uh, but if, if the, the, the um, result of the Celtics putting him in is Mark Gasol trying to back down and, and post up, and I think the Celtics are fine with that because that takes away the real strength of the Toronto Raptors offense. So, but I thought he came in and gave them kind of what they needed, maybe not exactly what they needed. Uh, there's enough to watch in the game film that he can improve on, but he also gave them enough, not just protecting the rim and blocking some shots. You know, he'll always have a spectacular block. The hard rolls and the pick and roll, the ability to put that kind of pressure on the, on the Raptors defense really changes a, a lot of what they can do because if they're helping so much and if they're helping a lot on Kemba and Kemba can, you know, get those pocket passes in there, get them past those double teams and those blitzes, then Robert Williams goes up and finishes with the dunks like we've seen. So that that's an element that it's nice to have on the bench. And if he could just repeat a lot of this, uh, th- that would be great. If he can improve on this performance, then that I, I don't know how the Raptors kind of respond to that. We spoke um, yeah, a few weeks ago about Kemba Walker's knee and the minutes restrictions and the fact that it was worrying that it had been so long and he was still limited. How is he looking now? Because that minutes restriction is off. He played 32 minutes in this one, uh, you know, 18 points, 10 assists. Uh, do we have any of those concerns still? Well, I didn't until he tweaked his knee again uh, in this game. Uh, he said he had some pain in it initially. It doesn't seem like it's it's something that bothered him. He came back. He didn't he didn't come out of the game at all. He he finished the game off uh, and and made some pretty spectacular shots. Uh, so it's not quite as concerning. But anytime anything happens with that left knee, there's like uh, okay, let's see how he sleeps. Let's see how he wakes up. Is there going to be any stiffness, any pain in that? Um, so we'll see. Prior to that, though. I haven't. I think he's been playing really well. We've seen the bursts. We've seen the stops. Uh, that step back of his. Uh, so I, I haven't had any concerns. If he comes out of this little tweak, whatever it was, and he feels fine, then that's even a greater sign that the strengthening worked. Because to tweak it but have his leg be strong enough to absorb that and have it not be an issue, that shows that they the the plan, the build up, and all that stuff was the way, the, the way it should have been all along. Outside of Boston not hitting 44% of their threes and Toronto <laughs> not hitting 25% of their threes, what do you think, what sort of adjustments do you think the Raptors could make to, to, to get this series back on track and how does has Boston counter that? Well, um, I, I think Toronto is going to have to find a way to capitalize on Boston's turnovers. The Celtics had 22 turnovers in this game, and 18 of those came after the first quarter. Uh, so I think 
the the Raptors are going to have to figure out something on their in their breaks in their transition, maybe maybe work on some sort of you know drag screen flare screen type of action in their in their transition when they get out there to try and free up a couple of guys to get them going. Uh, I would also find a way to spring Kyle Lowry early. He had some trouble. I think I don't know maybe it was that ankle, but he had some trouble getting by guys off the dribble. So maybe trying to find some creative ways to get him going and into the paint, get him to the free throw line a little bit more. Uh, and, and how the Celtics would respond to that uh, would be uh, just to really tighten up their rotations. I think the Celtics transition deal was, was pretty good, but they, they can't get caught sleeping like they did. Uh, they just got to be really tight on their rotations. Uh, if, if they do see these screens being set, we may see, uh, I don't know if they're going to blitz the ball handler and how they rotate. Um, maybe maybe even just rely on a lot of switching because they, they do have the versatility to do that. So um, th- those are the things I would see Toronto trying to work on to, to capitalize on at least the mistakes that I saw the Celtics making in game one. Well, it's a great start for Boston. One twelve ninety four in Game One puts them in uh, in great stead to uh, to go on and perhaps win this series. You would expect some sort of counterpunches coming from Toronto. John, you're going to have it covered for us all over on Locked On Celtics over the coming weeks and hopefully into the further rounds for Boston fans. Thanks for coming on Locked On NBA. You got it anytime. Now let's go to LA to bring in one of the hosts of the Locked On Clippers podcast. William Updike is here with me. The Clippers. Just closed out the Dallas Mavericks in six games. Um, in the end, game six was relatively comfortable with a, uh, a really strong Kawhi Leonard game. He was probably the, the major difference in this one, ending with 33-14-7. Big game from Kawhi, um, but it wasn't without some shaky moments, Will. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I mean, I think that's all credit given to the Mavs. Uh, obviously, a, a historically efficient offense. Uh, that the Clippers definitely struggled with. I think the turning point was obviously the defensive adjustments made in game five that we were able to carry through. I thought the rotations and communication got a lot better. And the, you know, that's ultimately what was able to put it us away, put it away for us. Now, Doc Rivers has been criticized for some of his coaching decisions uh, throughout his career, throughout this season, throughout this series, but he did make uh, an adjustment in this one, and we got a lot of minutes from Ivica Zubats. 33 minutes, he was a plus 33 during that time. He had 15 and 11, while Montrez Harrell barely played. Now, Harrell was getting cooked almost every game when he was matched up alongside uh, Luka Doncic and when he was paired with Lou Williams and Reggie Jackson. Um, how... How are we looking at Harold in these games? Because we know he missed so much of the, the, the camp and all the seeding games as he was with his grandmother. Um, but he has not looked good. Is this a, a matchup thing? I've been calling for more Zubats all season from Doc because I think he works better with that lineup. Has Doc finally realized that? Is this a one-off scenario? Like, How are we seeing that mix between those two players? You know, I, so like just referring to the doc thing, I my only answer is I hope so. Like I, I hope that this is validation enough and um, strong enough argument for for Zubats to be receiving uh, larger minutes. You know, basically the rhetoric all season has been that Zoo is, uh, according to Doc, a starter, but Trez is the closer. Uh, and I think that what we've seen from the series is that Zoo is obviously capable of closing in those scenarios. Uh, you know, it's it's not a secret. Like having a prototypical size center 
is going to improve the defense. Uh, I think that Zoo has worked incredibly hard to improve his touch on the offensive end as well as his passing. So I, I, I hope that this is not a blip in the radar because I, I don't think that this is a fluke. I think that this is something that we've seen from Zoo all season. He's definitely capable of doing this. And while it is matchup dependent, um, I, you know, I still would like to see him get that 30 plus minute kind of range. And, and as for Harold, you know, he, he is definitely getting his legs back under him. Um, it, it's different the way that we've used him, you know, because he is a defensive liability. Um, if you're not using him in a higher usage rate in the offense, uh, in my opinion, you're kind of ne- negating uh, any usage, not any, but you're, you know, you're, you're kind of negating the bigger factor that he is on the floor, which is obviously uh, offensively in that pick and roll with Lou Williams. And I, I think what we saw from this one is, yeah, matchup. It was terrible. Uh, you know, Trez, could not hold his own on defense at all um, and struggled against Boban, struggled just kind of in general. And while I do think that Harold will be better moving forward, um, it's still one of those things where, like, we've seen the sample size. I feel like we've just seen enough of the sample size when uh, both Reggie, Lou, and Trez share the floor. And the thing is, is, you know, unless in, in the offense is really on fire, they're nowhere close to uh, coming out a net positive with how many points they're going to give up on the other end. Well, that's you, know, you talk about that trio. Harrell was a minus 19 here. Lou Williams played only 17 minutes. He was a minus 15. He shot one of nine. Reggie Jackson was a minus five. He was uh, nowhere near that number until some uh, you know, late late uh, resurrection of his play. He ended with 27 minutes and 14 points. But those guys were all really struggled in this one. And we're likely to get Patrick Beverly back for game one of the next round. So that's going to throw that whole guard rotation. It's going to be up in the air how this works because Shamit played 38 minutes in this one. Uh, again, Jackson looked a little bit better, but you know how how is this going to be managed? Is this a concern? Maybe it's not much of a concern next series versus either Utah or Denver. Some could argue that maybe the Dallas matchup was even tougher than either of those two teams. But yeah, I wouldn't have said that what we saw from Jackson and Williams and even Shamit was encouraging throughout this whole series. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I would agree. Right. Uh, and it's like the same offensive usage thing as with Trez, like you have to get those guys, uh, really involved in the offense in a lot of possessions and they have to be hitting those shots, which uh, I mean, more likely than not, they're not going to be as inefficient, especially Lou Williams as he was this game. But the thing is, right. Uh, I, I think a lot of people and, and some Clippers fans might be mad about this, but in the playoffs, clearly these rotations were going to sink. And while having this bench uh, has been great throughout the regular season, uh, there's so many defensive worries, uh, as well as some inconsistent offensive so, sort of ups and downs uh, as far as production. So, like, clearly the rotation is going to sink. But with Patrick Beverly, that does really shore up the guard rotation. And, you know, Reggie has been much better uh when he's in these sort of catch and shoot situations i haven't really been a huge fan of how he's uh, like his decision making uh with the ball in his hands uh so i i don't know what that rotation is going to look like on the second unit i i think that shamit has made a decent enough argument that um you know he's he's added enough little wrinkles to his offensive game that he can be more than just a catch and shoot guy um, is, but you know, he'll be great playing off ball with Lou will. And I do think that his defense, like 
you know, obviously he's not making an all defensive team, but it, it is a step up from Reggie Jackson. So I, I think that you have to weigh the, per, like you have to weigh the pros and cons of how bad those defensive performances are. And, you know, if, if Lou has the hot hand or, or Reggie has the hot hand, I, I can understand why doc would go to them, but I, I do feel like time and time again, sometimes we're looking for this offensive outburst uh, while hemorrhaging points on the other side when, you know, I, I feel like Doc is kind of banging his head into the wall with, with, with some of these rotations uh, that, that I think has been kind of frustrating throughout this series. Uh, and, we, you know, we, we've definitely seen it at different points throughout the entire tenure. Last thing here, Will, is Marcus Morris was ejected for a flagrant foul on Luka Doncic. We saw the footage of him a few games ago, potentially, allegedly, maybe changing direction to step on Luka's ankle and then smacked him around the head today. Um, are we expecting any sort of suspension here um, from from Morris? And how has his fit been in this series on court? Um, you know, the, the suspension thing I can't really speak on. I, I don't think it's worthy of a suspension. I mean, we saw as hard of a foul... Uh, from Hardaway Jr. on Paul George, uh, if not harder than that, than the foul was on Luca. Uh, so I do think that those kind of things have have a weird inequality in how they've been called. Um, uh, you know, like with the Morris stuff, um, obviously he, uh, you know, he he definitely has a reputation, and I don't think that that's something that he's, you know, he's really going to be able to escape for being like somewhat of a hothead and. Uh, you know, it, it does come in handy sometimes, those guys who can do the dirty work, but you don't want it done. Um, you know, you don't want it done in a way where there's ever a question. And while I personally don't think that Morris was like in, intentionally uh, in the, you know, in the in the flat tire situation on Luca trying to step on his ankle. Um, you know, it, it, there was no question that that uh, that the block today was a flagrant. But as far as Marcus's performance overall. I mean, I, I've had my questions about this fit. I've wondered what version of Marcus Morris would, we would be getting, whether we would be getting the great role player, you know, Boston Celtics version of Marcus Morris, or whether we'd be getting the hothead, uh, sort of ball-dominant uh, Knicks version of Marcus Morris. And throughout this series, I, you know, I, I thought that he's been um, – he's really been good. He's, he's had a, a little bit of ups and downs as far as, like, uh, his efficiency on the scoring end goes, but I really think he's been getting it done um, and, and just playing as a complimentary player – uh, to Kawhi and Paul George, which was, you know, my biggest question. So uh, it's it's no doubt. I mean, it would be a huge loss if he if he was to even have a one game suspension. Um, I you know I had my worries today about the Clippers being able to put it away without him on the floor. We'll we'll uh, we'll check back in with you at some point on Locked On NBA. But if you want all of the Clippers news as they head into round two, go and check out Locked On Clippers. And thanks for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Guys, Built Bar is back. And they're not just back with the same flavors they had before. There are new flavors for the best tasting protein bar ever. Six new flavors, including carrot cake and lemon almond cheesecake. Hey, there's four other new ones, plus their original 12 flavors too. And if you go to builtbar.com, you can check out all of the great flavors that they have over there. Why would you want to eat a protein bar that tastes like cement or sawdust or dirt? Built Bar tastes like a candy bar. It is the best tasting protein bar ever. The bars are covered in 100% chocolate and they are soft and easy to chew. It is great for the health conscious guy who is looking to maintain weight or lose weight while also indulging in a delicious treat. The bars are low calorie, they're low sugar, and they're high protein and high fiber. What a great combination that is. For example, the peanut butter bar, 19 grams of protein, only 180 calories, and just 5 grams of sugar. That is a great health and nutritional profile for a bar that tastes like you're eating a candy bar. 
So if you go to BuiltBar.com, we've got an offer for you. You can use the promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your next order. So go to BuiltBar.com, check out the great flavors, check out all of the great nutritional points and use that promo code LOCKEDON and you will save $10 off at BuiltBar.com. All right, now we'll bring in the host of the Locked On Rockets podcast. Jackson Gatlin is here with me. Houston had a big win in Game 5 of their series against the Thunder, and then now they're looking to close it out on Monday. Um, Jackson, Russell Westbrook returned in Game 5. Is that the difference? You know, I think there's a, a few things that you could point to, but I will say that Russell Westbrook, even though you look at his stat line, right? Three of 13 shooting, missed both of his threes, didn't get to the free throw line, you know, did have, did dish out seven assists, but only seven points on the evening, you know, not really impactful, you know, just looking at the box score, but he brings a certain, a certain edge or mentality to this Rockets team. And I think that was on display throughout this game as they were attacking throughout the entirety of this game. They didn't ever find themselves settling for three point shots, which is, which was their undoing in that game four loss. And it was really more akin to those games one and two where they came out, they had that mental edge. And I think Russ kind of brought some of that back in game five. Um, He was on a minutes limit in game five. He didn't need to get to that minutes limit because the game was over pretty quickly. What are we looking at for game six? Do we still have any indication that he's going to be limited with that thigh or quad issue? It's definitely going to still be on a limit uh, on a uh, minutes restriction, but um, you know I think especially in this one, you know the Rockets just blew the game so wide open in the third quarter. There wasn't, like you said already, there wasn't a worry for him to get anywhere close to that minutes restriction. I'd imagine it's probably still going to be in that twenty-eight to probably thirty-two range, give or take. If the game is close down the line. MDA is absolutely going to push Russ past whatever minutes restriction that is, if necessary. He even joked about it uh, before going into Game Five, saying, "If you see the trainer trying to get ne- you know near me on the sideline, tackle him for me so that I don't have to take Russ out of the game." Yeah, we know D'Antoni has no uh, compunction with playing players a uh, a large amount of minutes. Some uh, none some, whatsoever. <laughs> some some would say, yeah, he's uh, he, he, if he could go with a five man rotation and play him all forty eight minutes, I'm pretty sure he would. But the other news that I guess came down from this one, we had in Game Five, Dennis Schroeder and PJ Tucker both ejected. Both players have been fined, so they are free to play uh, in in this game coming up. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how to, to to phrase this one, Jackson, but Houston has a bit of a reputation for uh, complaining to the league for justice. So how, how does that sit with uh, someone covering the Rockets team? Do you think it, it's, and maybe it's just that it gets highlighted all the time when it's Houston, but is how, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that that is the right way to go about it? I think that's almost like, it's kind of a two-part question. So first is, yeah, Houston does have a, a history with complaining about the officials. And I think that, Specifically, we'll go back to, right, because the one that everybody wants to point to is when they, you know, when Daryl Morey did the audit of the 2018 series against the Warriors, where the Rockets felt that there were a large number of calls that either were not made or that were made in favor of Golden State that left them at a disadvantage while they were already at a sizable talent disadvantage to one of the most talented teams of all time. So I will say that for a team that was right there on the cusp of potentially dethroning one of the most talented teams of all time, you know, you're looking for any possible way to win. 
And so when you're looking at these games and thinking, yeah, you know, the Rockets are playing high level basketball, but they're up against this juggernaut of the Warriors, then you're going to be looking for every little thing to potentially go your way. And when you feel like you're not getting the benefit of the whistle or even worse, when the whistle is, you know, potentially benefiting the other team more so than yours, it makes sense to want to highlight that to potentially give your guys a chance to succeed, which is, I think, at the heart of it all, that's what most Rockets fans want is they just want a fair whistle on both sides. I have no issue calling it out when I say, oh yeah, that, that call should have gone for the other team that, you know, that was definitely a call in favor of the Rockets. It just feels like more often than not calls tend to go against the Rockets. Just looking at this series against the thunder, you know, specifically in games uh, three and four, the free throw discrepancy was ridiculous between the thunder and the Rockets. The thunder had almost double the amount of free throw attempts that the Rockets did. And that is not, simply because of the Thunder driving more or being more aggressive or anything like that. There's multiple plays throughout games where you see James Harden, Eric Gordon, other Rockets players driving to the rim, receiving contact, and then OKC is getting whistles for, you know, very minimal touch contact on the other end. And it's understandable to feel a little bit frustrated about that. Now, in regards to P.J. Tucker and this isolated specific incident, you know, I think that at the, at the heart of it all, they, the Rockets just want justice for their players. And PJ felt that, you know, Dennis Schroeder had a cheap blow, you know, below the deck and took exception to that. And I think that the referees handled it beautifully in the moment, you know, sending PJ, you know, ejecting PJ and, and assigning Dennis Schroeder the flagrant two. I think those were the right decisions to be made because PJ shouldn't have reacted that way. It's understandable that he reacted that way. And the, the fines on both of the players, look, I'm just happy that neither of them are suspended for game six so that both teams are at full strength. Yeah, I think everybody outside of you know, very, very diehard biased fans on either team would want both players in there because they're obviously key parts of those rotations. Um, on the, the Rockets side of things, let's, you know, let's talk about Harden. How have you seen his play through this series? You know, I think that looking at the end of games three and four, I think there was definitely a bit of unraveling and some struggling at the end of those games, you know, some just late game execution that just was not there. You know, some really absent-minded plays from James Harden, some, you know, crucial turnovers, um, you know, especially game four where Mike D'Antoni made the decision to only give Harden, you know, about what it was like 66 seconds of, of real time rest in the game. And then he had to play the entirety of the fourth quarter. So he was gassed for much of that stretch. I think that just looking at that down the line, there were some issues, but in game five, and here's the thing is nobody, nobody's going to remember it. It's not going to jump out at you because it wasn't a, you know, beautiful game winner like Luca had, but James Harden absolutely willed the Rockets to victory in this game five because when nobody else could generate any offense in the first half, James Harden poured in 20 first half points and did it on insane efficiency as well as dishing out a handful of dimes throughout that first 24 minutes of action. So James Harden was keeping the Houston offense humming along while nobody else could generate anything. And that kept them in the game until they got to the third quarter where they were able to absolutely you know, blow the game wide open on both sides of the court, offensively and locking down defensively. And that still, that didn't have to just do with Dennis Schroeder being ejected from the game because he was still there. He started the third quarter and was there while the Rockets opened up that quarter on that 17-2 run. So it didn't have to do with just... Dennis Schroeder being ejected from that game. I think the Rockets were well on their way to securing the victory, even if that altercation had not taken place. But Harden deserves credit for being the guy for stepping up and having a, a statement game in a pivotal game five. Um, what do you think 
what do the Rockets need to do here to close this out in Game 6? Is it just more of that the same? Is the return of Westbrook just going to be too much for the Thunder to uh, cope with? And what do they need to be cautious of? I think at times the Rockets are their own worst enemy when it comes to these basketball games because their system... Here's the thing about Mori Ball, right? Is Mori Ball prides itself on three-pointers, layups, dunks, and free throws. And sometimes it feels like the layups, dunks, and free throws are like the redheaded stepchild of, of the Mori Ball system in that the Rockets tend to fall in love with that three-point shot to their detriment sometimes, right? Everybody likes to point out the 0-27 for 27 against the Warriors. Um, you know, they had the stretch in Game 4 just recently in the series where they could not buy a bucket after nailing eight three-pointers in a row to start the second half. And I think that having Russ back, I mentioned it already, that mentality that he provides, even if he's not filling up the stat sheet, James Harden has mentioned multiple times now that Russ is their leader. And he provides them something on the court, a mental edge, that you know, emotional leadership, that vocal leadership that James Harden doesn't necessarily bring to the table. It's not that he's not a good leader. It's just that he's never been the emotional you know, heart and soul leader of, his, of these Rockets teams. He's always the best player. There's no doubt about that. But Chris Paul kind of filled that role for two years, and now Russell Westbrook is kind of filling that role. And so having that key element back on the team, you know, there's so much that goes on on the basketball court that, you know, comes down to chemistry and hustle and grit and things that you can't chalk up in a stat sheet. And I think Russ brings a lot of that back. And I think that as long as the Rockets maintain that aggressive mentality that they had in Game 5, that they absolutely had in Games 1 and 2, then it's going to be very much impossible for OKC to overcome that. Well, Jackson, people are going to be able to tune into Locked On Rockets to find out the result of Game 6 and see exactly what happens from Houston and whether they are moving on to take on the Lakers or they have to back up for a Game 7. So thank you for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Absolutely. Anytime, man. And people can also check me out on Twitter at JT Gatlin, also the show at Locked On Rockets to keep up to date with all things Clutch City. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Locked On NBA. Don't forget to subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify, and go check us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts as well. Check us out on the social media accounts, Locked On NBA, on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Some great work happening over there. So go and check those out and follow us there. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.